there in Neville. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's 11 and a half after the hour. It's a Wednesday morning, and uh, Doug Greenwald joins us from Columbia, Maryland. Doug's back home again after many moons on the road. I got back to Columbia last week, and Doug is the Senior Teaching Fellow and Executive Director at Preserving Bible Times, ministry that's been around for 15 years, and it's it, what you do is just invaluable, Doug. And, uh, well, it's good to know that at least two people think that. Well, I think I think many think that, you know, because because uh, you know I I don't know who's listening, but I can kind of tell how many uh, you know, get you get the data, and and when you're on, numbers go up. Uh, where did we leave off last week? We were talking about uh, we were going to get into hospitality. Yeah, well, I think you know we did a lot of minor pieces of village context the last couple of weeks. Now we'll move into some major pieces of it mm-hmm. and probably the best place to start is with mandatory hospitality it's uh, woven all throughout the cultures of the near east if and the word mandatory is a very important word here there's nothing optional about hospitality even to your enemies and it is such a common part of Near Eastern village culture, that it's just implicitly involved in uh, a number of biblical passages. The fact that it's not written down causes us in the West to miss it, but to a Near Eastern, Middle Eastern person, it just jumps out in spades. Um, well, it originated, so me, it originated with Moses, did it not? That was a command to the people in, in, in what, what, Deuteronomy, perhaps? I'm, I don't know where the first uh, reference is to mandatory hospitality, but it's there. Uh, even to strangers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I want to tell you a Bedouin story, one of the better ones that I, better Bedouin stories. That's a double play on words there. But uh, the story is told about a patriarch of a Bedouin clan. This is probably late 1800s. And he had uh, a favorite son that he gave a very special rifle to that had an ivory carved uh, stock. And um, one day, his son did not return home from a hunting trip, nor the next day, nor the third day. And so he mounted a party to go out and scout around and eventually they found his son dead and the rifle was gone several years later three people on horses showed up on a distant horizon line and eventually headed towards the encampment here this Bedouin encampment and when they arrived one of the three was carrying the rifle with the ivory stock. And he knew that he was confronted by the killer of his son. But this is the Near East, mandatory hospitality. So he invited the three men into his encampment and showered them with food and hospitality for three days, which is the custom. And then when they left... He waited three more days because in the worldview of these people, it would take three days for the salt that was part of the food, that was part of the hospitality that he extended to them, left the body and there were no traces of it left. 
And on the fourth day, he tracked down this person and killed him. Mm-hmm. Mandatory hospitality. Mm-hmm. Did, did you make that up? No, I didn't. I actually heard that from Dr. Harry Vent uh-huh. from uh, Crossways Ministry okay. in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That points out the extent to which hospitality permeates the Near Eastern culture and the mandatory nature of it, even to your enemies. So, when we walk into a village story in the Bible, we're dealing with mandatory hospitality. And this starts to have interesting interpretive dimensions to it as we travel to different passages. For example, let's start with the birth narratives in Luke 2. Joseph and Mary are part of the clan of David. David is no stranger to the people in Bethlehem. Per the Mishnah, he has been returning to Bethlehem from Nazareth every July to participate in the Davidic wood offering. You mean Joseph? Joseph. Yeah. So one night when Joseph and Mary show up, a very pregnant Mary... Mandatory hospitality is still operational here. Why is it that none of what we think were about 300 homes, single-room homes, with a little side partition called in the Cataluma, the guest room, why is it that none of these 300 guest rooms could be made available to this couple who are of the Davidic clan and for whom hospitality is mandatory? You see, when you look at the birth narratives from a mandatory hospitality perspective, boy, does it raise a question or two. What is going on? Are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And the best explanation would be that in coming down annually from Nazareth to Bethlehem every summer, to participate in the Davidic clan's wood offering infrastructure support in the temple. One July, Joseph showed up and said, oh boy, do I have good news? I am betrothed to a wonderful woman named Miriam, Mary. And the clan says, congratulations. We can't wait to hear about the wedding feast. Mandatory hospitality means you must invite your clan to your wedding feast. Mm -hmm. So, um, when Joseph and a very pregnant Mary show up in Bethlehem, not the night of the birth of Jesus. I mean, just read Luke carefully. He says, while they were there, she bore a son. We don't know how long they've been in in Bethlehem, two days, two weeks, or two months, but they certainly didn't show up at 10 o'clock at night to have Tom Burdett not leave the light on for them. Mm -hmm. What do you think the first question of the clan is? I would think they were were shocked if Mary was, and obviously she was pregnant, uh, there would first be a question in their mind, and then there would be, I think, condemnation. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that happened was a question. Mm-hmm. How come we weren't invited to the wedding feast? I mean, obviously there was one, That's right. right. They would have assumed pregnant. initially that, that it all went on without them, that, that things exactly. had been done by the book. Yeah, Which violates mandatory hospitality in their eyes, and they're not looking kindly on this situation. Mm-hmm. And we've been left out. We've been, we've been shunned. 
we've been ignored. What happened? Something's wrong here. Yeah. Well, Joseph says, I mean, um, uh, stutters and hems and haws and said, actually, there wasn't a wedding feast. Uh-oh. Mm. Adultery. Unclean. Can't let you into our guest rooms in any of these 300 houses in Bethlehem. Because, and, and this is not necessarily to punish you. This is not necessarily our moral judgment. It's God's judgment. And we become unclean if we let you in. Correct? Yes. And you will then make our house unclean. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole ritual purification protocol. That's a headache we don't need. Mm. So this mandatory hospitality theme is an important one. It's always present in a village setting. And I would suggest this is a very, very helpful way to understand the birth narratives of Jesus. Mm. See, have there, has there ever been, as this is a small digression, we can easily come back on the trail. Has there, has there ever been... And I know we've we've talked about you know this this notion of me going back and asking my Sunday school teachers for my money back is that you know they left out so much more of the story. And I know there was never a complete full explanation of why the people of Bethlehem would be so so totally unkind and and turn their back on this this uh, pregnant couple. Uh, what have there ever been an alternate? Um, explanation offered Uh, I mean this one makes sense but I don't remember ever hearing anybody else saying well the people uh, you know told them there was no room at the inn and this is why they told them that and even an an innkeeper has been referred to which is silly now yeah Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember anybody ever saying to me well this is why these people have done this well part of your question is to get a little bit behind your question the word that has been translated in i-n-n is the greek word kataluma mm-hmm. which means guest room and if i could show you a, a reconstruction of a first century home it's basically one room it's a one everything room talk about a family room that's everything mm-hmm. but at the far end of maybe this 12 by 15 foot uh, slightly rectangular home, there is a uh, almost floor-to-ceiling uh, giant canister set where the grains are kept. And behind that is a three-foot space, which is called the Cataluma. It's the guest room. And because hospitality is mandatory in the Near East, and because you have members of your clan traveling three times a year to go to the major festivals in Jerusalem, and you have to put them up, that's where you put them up. And it's not a very hospitable room at all in terms of size. It's very, very small. But the reason every one of these single-room homes still has this partition and this this kataluma, this guest room, tiny thing, at one end of the house is because the rabbis have decreed that no observant Jewish man can sleep in the same room with another man's wife. And so that's why you have to have this kataluma. That's why we know there is a kataluma in every one of these homes. And that just adds to our intrigue as to why none of them can be made available to this couple. Now, to go back onto another slightly cul-de-sac here, you might ask yourself, where does the word in come from? I mean, how did kataluma get so mistranslated if it means guest room? 
As far as we know, it goes back almost to like the 1800s or uh, 800 BC or AD when we think the historic Roman church just decreed that um, it was an inn because it was easier for people to understand. Hmm. And that has stuck with us for a long, long time. And if we, you and I would go to Zondervan or Tyndale or Thomas Nelson and say, hey, your Bible's got this word wrong, they would say, you're right, we know it, but we don't dare change it. Uh-huh. Hmm. Because hmm. if we did change it back to guest room, people probably would shy away from buying our Bible because obviously there's something wrong with this Bible. We all know what's in. You know, and from what hmm. you've, you've taught us before, in the 8th century AD, the Romans really wouldn't have known better because the context had been missing for centuries. They probably did not fully understand about uh, a, a Jewish house. No, and if you go to Rome and start traveling south on the Apian Way to, say, Naples, uh, the very first piece of uh, Roman road, you realize that about every 20 miles is an inn where the civil servants who were traveling on Rome's behalf throughout the empire to coordinate things were entitled to free room and board. So it makes sense that in their mind, in is a logical way to sort of try to capture the Mary and Joseph story. Although, as you point out, it's totally disconnected from the contextual cultural reality of the Near Eastern situation. Mm-hmm. Which makes But isn't it interesting how tradition can have a stronger grip on us than the truth when well, it comes well, yes. to certain verses in the Bible? Yes, it's, it's downright mm. misleading is what it is. It obscures the meaning. That's why we're so exactly. grateful for you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another reason why context is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and why you can be easily misunderstood if you're a contextualist. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there it, were places for travelers in first century Israel, too, but those were largely just like big sheep pens, weren't they? Just big open-air things in between cities. And in a village, there would, would not have been a, 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 a literal inn or hotel. No, where there were what we would know as an inn is on the major trade routes, mm-hmm. where I think the technical Greek word for it is caravansiae, mm-hmm. for the caravanners. Uh-huh. Okay? Mm. Um, those were more formal, you know, rent-a-room, B&B kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But um, being five miles south of Jerusalem, there wouldn't be any caravan or inns in Bethlehem. But in the story of, of the Good Samaritan, there is a there, reference there, to an inn. Yes. He takes him south to Jericho and puts him up in a, in a caravansier, caravan inn, mm-hmm. because Jericho sits right at the conjunction of two major trade routes. Yeah, it's a big city. So it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So anyway... That's how mandatory hospitality has some implications for the birth of Jesus. Now, if we switch gears and go to Luke 11, where we have the parable that Jesus tells of the midnight visitor, it's all about mandatory hospitality. Again, in this story that Jesus weaves, a guest shows up who's known by someone in the village at midnight. Wait a second. I'm going to pull a Doug Greenwald on you. Yeah. Let's back up a couple of verses in a chapter here. 
Jesus has just taught his disciples how to pray. They, they said, how do, you, how do you want us to pray as your disciples? And he taught them. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this, this parable he is telling is an extension of his instructions on how to pray. Correct. Well, it absolutely is, and, yeah. and you beat you beat me to that observation by about thirty seconds. Uh oh, sorry about that. But that's okay. Um, I'm not trying to develop the whole story here because it, it would take me a half an hour. But mm -hmm. I just want to highlight the mandatory hospitality aspect of that parable. Is that when a visitor shows up to your village, um, you must extend them mandatory hospitality at that moment in time, and in this culture. Presumably, if it's the summertime, having a visitor show up at midnight isn't that unusual because if you've ever been in Judea in the summer, it's hot. And since your only mode of transportation is walking 16 to 18 miles a day, you do not want to walk in the dead heat of the day. You'll probably only walk maybe eight miles a day and you'll leave at four or five in the afternoon. And you'll walk until midnight. So, you know, we Westerners aren't used to people showing up on our doorstep at midnight. But in the Middle East, that's not that unusual. Uh, granted, it doesn't happen every day, maybe not even every week, but it's not that unusual. And so the way mon mandatory hospitality works is immediately you have to extend the hospitality to that person by feeding him a meal. And as part of mandatory hospitality, you must feed your, your guest with more food than they can possibly eat. And because you don't have knives and forks and spoons, the typical utensils that we Westerners are used to for eating, you're going to eat with bread. And so... You, at a minimum, you have to have one complete loaf of bread. To give somebody a half a loaf of bread, which means it's been previously used, is an insult. Mm -hmm. But since you also must give your guests more than they can possibly use, one loaf of bread is insufficient. You should give them three. So that's where the request comes from, from the person who then goes to a door uh, of someone else in the village and says, friend, I need three loaves. Now, he needs more than bread. Bread is simply where it starts. He's going to need goblets. He's going to need food. He's going to need food serving bowls. But he asks for the bare minimum, and as the parable develops, he gets so much more because this is a parallel on pray, praying. Mm -hmm. And when we go back to the disciples' prayer, it's how to pray about daily needs. That's why the phrase daily bread is there, and that's why the phrase forgive us our sins, because nobody can get through a day without sinning, so forgiveness is a daily requirement, a necessity as well. The whole Lord's Prayer motif is a, is a backstory on how to pray for daily needs. And then Jesus starts to develop this midnight visitor parable to tell them how to pray for your daily needs. So now we'll go back to the main story here. Um, everyone in the village is immediately mobilized when hospitality for a friend or even a stranger is set in motion. 
because, and we'll get to this one probably next week, but this is an honor and shame culture as well. And if you fail to extend extravagant hospitality to a guest, your village is shamed. Because this is all about the honor of the, and shame of the community, not the individual. We in the West have to get outside of our individualistic glasses that we tend to view the world through and realize that when we walk into a Near Eastern village here, the village's honor, the villi- what's best for the village, transcends what's best for the individual. So the person at the door in this parable who asked for three loaves of bread knows that the person inside must respond. And that's where the tongue-in-cheek humor comes in understanding this passage when Jesus says, can you imagine a friend showing up at midnight and you going to someone in the village and saying, I need three loaves of bread? And they say this, don't bother me. My kids are asleep. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus expects his disciples to say, that is so outrageous, it's beyond the pale. That's not even an imaginable. That would never happen. Why, why would Jesus expect them to respond that way? As he gives this tongue-in-cheek description, because they all understand the rules of mandatory hospitality. If that person inside does not respond, they will be shamed throughout the village by daybreak, and everyone will know they failed to comply to protect the village's honor. And so part of the story that Jesus is weaving here is when you pray a prayer for daily necessities, you pray boldly, and you pray confidently, and you only need to pray once because the person inside certainly hears, certainly understands, and he has the capacity to respond. And oh, by the way, when you read the detail of the text, the person at the door not only gets bread, but he gets whatever else he needs. It's a wonderful story about how to pray, but to unfold it, to open it up, to unwrap it, you have to understand the cultural dimensions of how mandatory hospitality works in a village. Now, this is, this is just so neat because I have this, this mental picture of Jesus maybe sitting on a rock with his disciples around him, and he's telling them this story. And there, there are not many opportunities for us to, to, to envision Jesus maybe laughing we're having a good time with his disciples, sharing a joke. And I can see Jesus talking to his disciples about this. And he gets to that part and he just raises an eyebrow, waits for their laugh, and then slaps his knee along with the rest of them and then goes on with the rest of the story. I mean, Jesus is, a, is fully human and fully divine. So let's just focus on his humanity side. Mm-hmm. Don't we humans ever once in a while say something in jest? Don't we say something with our tongue in our cheek? Don't we say something with a glint in our eye and a smile on our lips? Yeah, we just don't think of Jesus that way. But I can take you to other situations in the Bible where he's doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. In, in Luke 4, he actually speaks, uh, we, we have to run across and deal with sarcasm. Well, we're not used to thinking about how to view a passage sarcastically, but that's actually is appropriate at certain points in time. And so it's really intriguing, once again, to open up the world of context because we see a side and a dimension to Jesus that we just don't normally think about. And without the context, we would never know. 
we would never see that that dimension of, of, of Jesus' relationship with his disciples or, or that dimension in his teaching and, and thereby revealing just how human he was. Yeah, and I want to underscore here, we're not changing the story. Mm-hmm. We're expanding it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, yes. we're actually rediscovering as it was originally understood. We're not creating anything new at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a very helpful distinction to make because sometimes think that contextualists run around reinventing these stories and being creative and speculative in changing the original intent. No, the absolute converse is true. We're doing our best to understand the original meaning because in our Western way of thinking, we often just see part of the story. We just see the part of the iceberg that's above the waterline and we're missing most of the story or the rest of the story that's below below the waterline that is unpacked and is understood by the culture of the day. Hmm. Interesting. Doug Greenwald, Senior Teaching Fellow and Executive Director, again, of Preserving Bible Times. Now, with our website problems, you can't go to our our homepage today and click on it, but there's a link there. Uh, But it's a simple website to remember, preservingbibletimes.org. Doug, we'll look forward to seeing you next week, okay? Thanks, guys. Next week, social reciprocity. Yeah, take care. Okay. See you next week, Doug. Shalom, shalom.